Hello, my name is Wesley Walter. I'm a freshman at the University of Montevallo. For my research paper, I decided to write about convict leasing, a penal system that involved the state government leasing convicts to private industry. I initially became interested in this topic because I, like many others, had never heard of it. Although convict leasing was the state's main penal policy for over half a century, very few people in Alabama know about it today. So far, I have yet to encounter someone who already knew about convict leasing when discussing my paper with others. As well as this, the topic is not just local to Alabama as a whole, but Montevallo as well, with mines and industry that utilize convict labor having existed in Shelby County and the surrounding areas as well. Convict leasing was a penal policy originally developed in the 19th century United States. The system involved the state governments leasing convicts to private industries such as mines and farms, which utilized them as laborers until the end of their sentence. Alabama had the longest and one of the most profitable convict leasing systems in the United States, with it being the state's main form of imprisonment from 1872 to 1928. Although convict leasing was not officially established in Alabama until the 1870s, the system had its roots in the antebellum South. In 1839, the Alabama State Legislature officially established Alabama's first state penitentiary in Wetumpka. Although it was designed to be completely self-sufficient, the state faced trouble running this penitentiary with it running up considerable debt by 1845. To amend this, the state legislature devised a system where the entire prison would be leased to private businessmen. These lessees would pay for the well-being of prisoners and in return receive any profits of their labor within the prison. This was not the only precursor to convict leasing. Antebellum plantation owners would often lease their slaves to private industry such as mines during the winter when slaves were unable to work in the fields. Convict leasing was not officially established in Alabama until 1872 when the penal board began dispersing Alabama's 219 convicts across the state to work in private industry and state projects. Governor George Houston soon learned that leasing of convicts to private industry was far more profitable than having prisoners work directly for the state. This realization became the foundation upon which the official convict leasing system was built, with the state government giving up any pretenses of caring for convicts and instead seeing the state's convict population merely as a way to make money. Over the next decade, the state signed many short-term leases to private industry with over half of Alabama's convicts being employed in coal mines by the mid-1880s. This system of short-term leases continued in the state until 1888, when frustration from the state legislature over the constantly fluctuating nature of the state's convict lease system led the state to sign a lease with the Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad Company, or TCI. This lease proved to be the most impactful and long-lasting of the leases signed by the Alabama state government. The lease the state signed with TCI proved incredibly profitable for both parties. Alabama charged TCI $18.50 per month for first-class workers, or workers deemed the most physically fit to work in mines. At the time, the rate for free miners who could work at a similar rate was $45 to $50 per month. The state's net income from the first two years of its lease with TCI totaled to $163,534.14. It's impossible to talk about comic leasing without discussing the racist justifications for upholding the system. From its inception, one of the main functions of the comic lease system was maintaining the established racial hierarchy and sense of superiority white Americans had over African American citizens. After the Confederacy lost the Civil War, southern states faced widespread panic about increased political, economic, and social autonomy of former slaves. At the time, a number of white southerners, many already economically ruined by the chaos of the Civil War, feared African Americans would take white people's place as the dominant demographic of the South. 
These fears served as the justifications for acts of racial terror committed by former Confederate soldiers in the newly founded Ku Klux Klan. Although racial terror served as one of the main forces of oppression faced by black Americans, the establishment of convict leasing and laws specifically targeted at black citizens became a much more powerful force limiting their success in what was supposed to be the newly freed South. With new laws in place that served to unjustly increase the rate of black incarceration and lengthen the sentences for minor crimes, convict leasing became a major way for white Southerners to legally maintain their power over African Americans. This desire to legally oppress black Americans and maintain Alabama's racial hierarchy became one of the key functions and motivating factors for the establishment and continuation of convict leasing. During the beginning of the 20th century, more and more movements fighting to end convict leasing began to emerge. These movements based their objections to the system on a wide variety of reasons. Moral objections to leasing prisoners had existed since the system's foundation. However, it was only after pressure from a multitude of different movements that Alabama finally put an end to convict leasing. These movements included a wide variety of organizations such as prison reformers in the media, anti-convict labor organizations, coal mine operators who did not use convict labor, and the Good Roads Association. Prison reformers in the media based their objections to the system on the system's rampant human rights abuses and the numerous scandals that showcased them. These groups were emboldened by scandals such as the Bannermine tragedy and the death of James Knox. Anti-convict labor organizations based their objections to convict leasing on the fact that it took jobs out of the hands of free miners. Similarly, coal miners that did not utilize convict labor felt the use of convicts gave companies that leased them an unfair financial advantage as leasing convicts was much cheaper than hiring free miners. Finally, there is the Good Roads Organization, an organization which lobbied for the improvement of roads across the country. The movement in Alabama believed that the state should remove convicts from mines and private industry and instead utilize them in working on roads, helping to improve the state's infrastructure. Media scandals were integral to bringing about convict leasing's abolition, as they brought attention to the inhumane conditions which prisoners had suffered for years prior. At a 1923 meeting of various civic organizations opposed to convict leasing, J.C. Arnold, a former member of the Alabama State Legislature, stated, The only thing that will abolish the system in Alabama is publicity, the same that is being done in Florida. Concealment of the facts has allowed the system to exist in the state, and if people only knew the truths of the barbaric practice, it would not exist any longer than the state legislature meets. On April 8, 1911, an explosion of the Banner Mine an Alabama mine run by the Pratt Consolidated Coal Company, killed 128 miners. Of the 128 killed, 122 were convicts leased to the mine by the Alabama state government, and all but five of them were black. This tragedy and the media's coverage of it exposed the horrors of convict leasing to a much wider audience and increased prison reformers' calls for the abolition of the system. The Banner Mine tragedy was a major turning point in the fight to end convict leasing with more focus being put on the dangerous conditions Alabama was selling its prison population into. Another major scandal came with the death of James Knox, a West Virginia native imprisoned in Alabama's flat-top mine for forgery. A report of Alabama's attorney general indicated that Knox had been severely beaten by guards and later held in a large laundry vat filled with hot water where he subsequently died. After his death, guards pumped a solution of sodium bichloride and mercury into Knox's stomach in an attempt to make his death look like a suicide. The brutality of Knox's death created widespread outrage among Alabamians and citizens across the nation. Sadly, Knox's death was not an isolated incident. A similar death occurred in neighboring Florida when a young North Dakota man named Martin Tabbert 
who was arrested for vagrancy, was killed by whipping in a convict camp ran by Putnam Lumber Company. This incident provoked widespread outrage among citizens not just from Florida, but across the country. The fact that Tabert was white and still a young man at the time of his death furthered the outrage across the country as Tabert's youth and race made citizens more sympathetic to his case. This scandal became widespread, leading to an official inquiry that would eventually bring about the end of convict leasing in Florida. In 1923, convict leasing was officially abolished in Florida, leaving Alabama as the only state that still utilized the system. With Alabama standing alone as the final state employing a system condemned as a relic of barbarism, the state government felt increased pressure to finally bring about an end to convict leasing. With negative publicity increasing the popularity of movements calling to end convict leasing, governmental candidates during the 1920s began to take public stances against the system. Alabama Governor Thomas E. Kilby, who originally ran and was elected in 1918, included the abolition of convict leasing as one of his central policies. During his four years as governor, however, Kilby failed to bring about an end to the system. Kilby's failure to abolish convict leasing was one of the biggest regrets of his term, and he continued to fight to end the system after his time as governor. 1923 marked the end of Kilby's term as governor, as he lost the campaign for re-election to opposing candidate William W. Brandon. Brandon, unlike Kilby before him, and Bibb Graves after, did not run against comic leasing and took no real public stance against it. He instead defended the system by downplaying the human rights abuses suffered by convicts and allowed for its continued existence during his four-year term as governor. In a sense, Governor Brandon acted as the last major official in Alabama to defend and attempt to keep in place the established hierarchy of comic leasing, allowing it to exist in the state for four additional years. It was not until Brandon lost his bid for re-election to Bibb Graves that convict leasing would finally be abolished in Alabama once and for all. Bibb Graves was an unlikely candidate to finally bring about the end of convict leasing. Graves was overall less progressive than Kilby and a known member of the Ku Klux Klan. During his 1926 campaign, however, Graves publicly ran against convict leasing and made its abolition one of his central policies. An advertisement for the Graves campaign seen in the Geneva County Reaper states that Bibb Graves will stop leasing convicts and use them to keep up roads already built. On December 4th of 1926, Graves signed an official measure which consisted of two bills written by Lieutenant Governor W.C. Davis, calling for an official end to convict leasing by the end of 1927. In January of 1927, this bill was given to the state legislature, marking the last time the issue of convict leasing would be deliberated upon by Alabama's House of Representatives and Senate. The Senate passed a bill that formally abolished the system at both the state and county level. The Senate decided to make the bill effective by March 31st of 1927. However, the House amended it, pushing the date back to 1928. After deliberation, the two houses amended the differences between the bills and decided convict leasing in Alabama would officially end by July 1st, 1928. On June 30th, 1928, 800 prisoners held at the Flat Top Mine completed their last work in the mines before being delivered to different penal institutions across the state. 500 prisoners from the Flat Top Mine and Aldrich Mines were sent to a state-run prison in Escambia County. Other prisoners were sent across the state to be put to work on Alabama's roads. An article from the New York Times reports one prisoner telling mine officials, Boss, I'm no longer in slavery, as he turned in his mining tools for the last time. Throughout its existence, convict leasing remained one of Alabama's most morally indefensible institutions. Despite the moral objections to the system, however, it was upheld for years by governmental and corporate greed with the system existing in the state for over 60 years after slavery was supposedly abolished. Although the abolition of convict leasing was important, 
It did not altogether solve the problem of dangerous or mismanaged prisons in Alabama. Almost a century after the system's abolition, Alabama's prisons are still some of the most dangerous and overpopulated in the United States. In April of 2019, the New York Times reported that there were 15 homicides in Alabama's prisons during the last 15 months, a homicide rate which vastly exceeds the national average. Finally, in 2020, a U.S. Department of Justice report officially declared Alabama's prison system unconstitutional due to overcrowding and widespread abuses of inmates by prison officials. The investigation found that of the 13 prisons the DOJ reviewed, 12 had corrections officers who frequently used excessive and sometimes deadly force in violation of prisoners' constitutional rights. The current state of Alabama's prison system shows how, despite the long and hard-fought battle to end convict leasing, the state still has a long way to go in the fight to secure better human rights protections for prisoners. Hopefully Alabama's government will learn from the mistakes of the past and attempt to amend the poor conditions faced by prisoners before their mistreatment goes on for far too long, just like convict leasing a century before. Thank you for listening to Reforming Dixie, stories from Alabama during the 1920s. If you are still interested in hearing more, stay tuned. There will be a roundtable discussion with all the project's participants after this chapter. Thank you.